Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. I think in some ways it's a bit of a surprise, uh, the number of people we have here today with spring break upon us, the opportunities to travel. Um, it's super encouraging to see all of you. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Russell Armstrong. I'm a covenant member here at the church. Um, before the service this morning, I had the opportunity to talk to Josh for just a second, and Josh said that he felt um, a little uncomfortable in um, uh, preparing for this morning's worship service. You wouldn't notice it by the way the service went, but what he said made him uncomfortable was the fact that he was going to be leading from the keyboards. He's usually um, playing the guitar, and he said, I feel like I'm going to be leading with two left hands. So he was feeling, uh, we thank the Lord for the spirit of strength that he gave you, Josh. And I just want you to know that in some ways I share a, a little bit of your discomfort this morning. Because right? typically I'm not the one that's standing up in front of the church preaching. Typically at this point in time I'm actually teaching the second to fifth graders. Uh, and so the audience is slightly different. Um, the good news is we're teaching the same thing to your second and fifth graders that you're hearing out here, right? Um, and it doesn't really matter uh, what voice it is that's actually speaking as long as we're speaking the truth of the word. And uh, I hope today that you will um, get just a bit of the blessing from this passage of scripture that we're going to be studying uh, that I got in preparing for, for this morning. I do appreciate the opportunity that Jeremy and Jay have given us. Um, if you're new to the church, if this is the first time that you've been here with us, um, just know that our normal preachers are both out of town this week. Uh, Jeremy is taking a little bit of much-deserved time off, and uh, Jay has the opportunity to be with, uh, with some other elders over in the Czech Republic, and he is... Uh, looking at opportunities for church partnership and planting opportunities over there. I was in communication with him this morning, and uh, he and Ben and Kenton uh, send back good reports from their meetings so far, said the church uh, there has been very receptive for them, and they're much encouraged about the opportunities that are presented for them uh, and for us as uh, uh, opportunities for partnership going forward. Um, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, have you go ahead, and if you have a paper Bible still, go ahead and open your paper Bibles to the same spot that we've been uh, preaching from and learning from over the past few weeks, and that is the Gospel of John. <clears throat> We're in the fourth chapter still picking up um, at the passage where Pastor Jeremy left off last week. So John chapter number four, if you have an electronic Bible, go ahead and scroll or over to that or however it is that you navigate your phone or, or iPad to get to it. Our reading this morning will be from John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 43. John 4, verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, 
he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the privilege that you have given us to join together this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have drawn us from our homes and, and, um, and other places, Lord, to be here together with, uh, with fellow believers. Lord, for those that, uh, uh, that don't know you today, we ask that you might work a special work of uh, grace in their hearts as they hear from your word, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit might rest upon them in much uh, conviction and comfort at the same time, Lord, that they might find here things that they're searching for. They might find them in your word today. Lord, we ask that you bless the others that have been here as well, that have set aside time to be in this place. Uh, Lord, uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit to comfort and encourage us during this time. Lord, I pray that you might help me to be uh, a useful vessel. Lord, help me to forget the things that I'm supposed to forget, to remember the things I'm supposed to remember, and to speak well uh, to these, your people. For this, we will offer you the praise and the glory, and we offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We pick up our story this morning um, on, the, uh, uh, on the conclusion of uh, what was really an amazing passage last week that Pastor Jeremy pointed out for us. As, as Pastor Jeremy preached through the text from last week, he covered about 40 verses or so, and he said that that passage was primarily about Jesus' ministry to the outsiders and the outcast and how his, his missionary work to them would be effective. Uh, we thought about the woman in the well and saw how that she was not only amongst the Samaritans, but she was an outcast amongst the Samaritans. And yet, the Lord loved her, he spent time with her, he interacted with her, he showed her much grace um, in his time that he spent with her, and as a result, she was eager to tell others about him. The message spread like wildfire, so to speak, in, uh, in Samaria. And uh, there was a great harvest as a result of it. We came off of last week with much encouragement by the direction that Jesus' ministry had taken in Samaria. It's interesting because we get um, a, quite a contrast here as we come into this end part of chapter number four. Uh, the beginning part, the woman at the well is filled with a lot of dialogue and, and, and description about the relationship that's taken place between Jesus and, and the woman at the well. And in this one, we see very little dialogue. If you look at the passage here, uh, there's only a few sentences that are spoken between the, the official and Jesus himself. 
uh, many other contrasts that you can see between these two accounts. One simply in the length of the, the time that is spent describing what's going on. John narrows down this, uh, this little snippet into just a few verses for us. Uh, so it's, it's much tighter. The focus is much, um, uh, is, much, uh, is much tighter as well. The aperture is closed down quite a bit. The audience is also quite different in this passage here, and perhaps it's an audience that those of us that are here this morning might find ourselves more in tune with than the audience last week. Uh, the audience this week is really God's chosen people, those that he had been used to working with, those who were very familiar with Jesus and his ministry. He's actually going back to his home region. Uh, and he's not only going back to his home region, the official that comes in to meet him is not at all an outcast of that group. As a matter of fact, he's an insider, so to speak. So this is a ministry of Jesus ministering to the insiders amongst his chosen people. And sometimes um, it's good for us to assess ourselves and say, where do we stand uh, in our relationship to the Lord? How do we find ourselves in the text as well? And personally, having grown up in the church, having been um, very familiar with the stories of Scripture and the, and the stories of Jesus, and in many ways taking for granted some of those aspects of, of uh, Christianity that others may not have, I find myself often... Um, uh, in kind of that very familiar insider role when I, uh, when I think about this setting. This is, the church setting is not an uncomfortable setting for me, so to speak. And I imagine that there's many of you here today that find yourself in the same situation. And yet, there's still a need for us, right? For those of us that feel like insiders and, and comfortable in this setting, we struggle just like the outsiders do, Right? We have the same problems that they have. Uh, it's not like Christians or those who have grown up in the church, those that may call themselves Christians, are immune from struggles and challenges. As a matter of fact, it seems in many ways like we get more of them than others. And to be honest with you, if you know the scriptures, in some ways that's to be expected because that's the way that God grows us and teaches us and trains us. And that's what's taken place with this official as well. God is using this interaction with him and the circumstances around his life to grow him and change him. Certainly, he was familiar with the teachings of the Old Testament and, and knew where his hope needed to be, uh, but it took something quite significant in his life to open his eyes to the fact that said, hey, I need to seek out Jesus Christ in a different way. Um, perhaps he had got to the point in his life where some of those promises that you find in Psalms about uh, even the ones that we sang about God being good today have become sort of a cliche to him. And we have that same tendency at times as believers to speak to one another verses like Romans 8, 28 that said, you know, God's working all of these things for our good. And we say them to one another when we're in difficult times and they can kind of fall on calloused ears, so to speak. Like the, the, the God is good all the time and all the time God is good saying becomes so familiar to us that it becomes somewhat meaningless. And in some ways, this passage of Scripture that we have before us today, um, I hope can serve for us to 
push away those calluses and let us see afresh the way God works in our life. Because the joy and satisfaction that a Christian has comes from us thinking not so much about the circumstances around us, but the big picture about what God's doing in our lives uh, in the long term. It comes with us thinking about the grace of God in his saving work in us. I'd like to just show a couple of slides by way of introduction that are going to help us as we think through this passage. Um, the first one here is just a, a definition of where joy comes from or a comment on where joy comes from. This is from John Calvin. He says, joy is a quiet gladness of heart as one contemplates the goodness of God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. So when we start to think about what is when we as a congregation gather and try to encourage one another, when we try to rejoice in what we share together, what is it that we should be rejoicing in? Where should that joy be coming from? It comes from a common understanding of what God has done for us, his saving grace in our lives. Uh, in the, fifth, the second to fifth grade class, we just talked about who God is and some of his attributes. And one of the things we talked about was his grace. If we can go ahead and put up the next slide. The word grace is found here, and I just want to take a second. We we gave a definition of grace for the second to fifth graders that said, hey, that's God being good to us when we're undeserved. I'd like to take this one from uh, a Greek dictionary that describes kind of the Greek word grace. And it says, the Greek word grace is used to describe the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. Moreover, the word contains the idea of kindness, which is bestowed upon one that has not, it's not deserved. So it's kindness undeserved in influencing us towards Christ and strengthening our belief. You'll see in this passage of Scripture today evidence of God's grace at work amongst those who are very familiar with him and those who many of us would think have no need uh, of anything outside of their own resources. Why do we say that? Let's take a look, if we could, in verse number 43. If grace is indicative, if, if grace is conditioned upon a sense of being undeserved, then certainly in this passage, we're going to start to see that the conditions are well set for grace to be shown. As we work through the sermon today, just if you're an outline taker, we're going to hit kind of three points. First, the conditions are set, right? So we find here in this passage that the conditions are well set for grace to be bestowed. The second we're going to look at are the actions taken, which is really going to be God's kindness um, on display. And then the third point we're going to talk about is the outcome or the results observed. So just a simple three-point outline, we'll move through it quickly. So this first point being, hey, this God's goodness to us, as we think about God's grace in our life, it's good for us to remember that we didn't earn it. Like there's nothing in and of ourselves that merited God's favor. And as we think about this account between the official and Jesus, it's good for us to remember that although the official was amongst the royal family, although he was plugged in um, in, the, in, in the regions of influence within God's chosen people, 
There was nothing that he had done or no reason that God felt indebted to be kind to him. As a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. And you can see how John sets this up in this transition little sentence here, these three verses in transition, showing us three elements in which uh, we can say, hey, obviously, John's trying to point us to the fact that God's grace is not earned. The first point, verse 43 says that after two days, he departed for Galilee. It's good for us to think then, what are these two days that he's talking about? Because it says after the two days, right? After the two days, he departed for Galilee. What are the two days that he's talking about? Well, if you look back in, chapter, in verse number 40, you'll see the two days that he's talking about are the two days that he spent in Samaria. Uh, so right off the bat, John's drawing our attention back to um, something that had just taken place. And what had just taken place in Samaria was a great harvest, so much so that we heard last week that Jesus said, I don't even need to eat right now. I'm so satisfied with the work, uh, with the benefits of the work, the results of this work right now, that it's keeping me sustained, uh, as a matter of fact. So the Lord is, ex is experienced great joy himself by the response that he was receiving, not only from the woman at the well, but from all of the members of the town there. He said they were all coming out. And what were they proclaiming about him? They were proclaiming that, hey, this is not just a great healer. As a matter of fact, he did no miracles in Samaria and yet had a great reception from them. So as we think back um, to chapter number two even, uh, you can remember that the Lord, although he did many miracles in Jerusalem, he didn't stay with them. Uh, he left because he knew what was in their hearts. Here in, uh, here in Samaria, he knows their hearts as well, and he's encouraged by what's taking place. He's staying with them. They ask him, hey, will you stay? He stays for two days, and he could have stayed much longer. He said, the, the fields are white unto harvest. Uh, there's a great harvest we can be pulling in here. And yet, after that, he turns his attention away from those people to the Galileans, who he had already been with, who had been very familiar with, and the Samaritans not so much, um, a short time there, and then all of a sudden he says, hey, it's time for me to go to Galilee. Um, if it had been you and me, we would have kept putting in our efforts where we were getting the most reward. But that's not what Jesus did. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus said, I'm turning my face to go to Galilee. Uh, why is that significant? Well, it's significant if you look at the very next verse. The very next verse says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So not only by comparison with the, the Samaritans do we see that, that Jesus is, is moving towards a situation where his kindness is undeserved, he is making a comment himself that says, I know these people are not going to respect me. I know when I interact with them, their familiarity with me is going to result in a dishonor. Right? He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. So he says, I know when I turn my attention to go to these people that I'm going to be disrespected, that they're not going to respond to me the same way that I've been responded to here in Samaria. And yet, he moves in that direction nonetheless. Um, D.A. Carson, one of the commentators on this passage, said this, this little sentence right here, and understanding it correctly, a prophet will have no honor, in his, uh, will not lack honor except in his own country, is really the key to understanding the whole narrative. 
Because it shows for us that the Lord, expecting rejection, expecting disrespect from those people that he was going to minister, still set his face to go forward and do so. What's the last point here that we see that highlights for us this, uh, this unmerited favor? It comes for us in verse number 45. It says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, they say the Galileans welcomed him. But the Galileans that welcomed him were the ones that were in Jerusalem back in chapter number 2. Can you go ahead and put up that next slide for me? Just show you what we're looking at here. So as we're walking through these three points, you can see this, the point of comparison here in, in, in verse number 39, uh, verse number 11, he comes to his own, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 says, he comes to his own, his own people did not receive him, indicative again of him going to his people knowing that they were going to reject him, and says, now when he was at Jerusalem in verse 23 and 25 of chapter 2, uh, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? You remember, as we preached through this before, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus, when he was ministering to these same people in Jerusalem, knew that their hearts were not really with him. He knew the only reason they were interested in him was because of the signs and wonders that he was doing. So although it reads like on the surface, hey, everything's great. The people want me here. They're welcoming me. They're welcoming him there the same way they welcomed him in Jerusalem in the second chapter. Jesus knew those people there. They're the same people in Galilee. It says they were there with him in Jerusalem. It's the same crowd. He knows their hearts also in, uh, in Galilee the same way he did in Jerusalem. So Jesus, knowing that this was an undeserving audience, nonetheless turns his attention and pursues ministry in that location. It's good for us just to remind ourselves again that God pursues us even though we're undeserving. And this can kind of play itself out in many ways. If you feel today um, like you find yourself in a situation where, hey, you know, when I compare myself to others around me, and I see like the way that this person has responded to Christ, or I see the way that God is working in that person's life, why would he want to continue investing effort in me? Because I'm finding myself falling short. Like, how is it that I uh, would be in any way deserving of God's goodness and grace when he could be investing his goodness and grace in somebody much more deserving than I? Well, that's a good place to be because that's exactly the conditions for where grace shows itself greatest, right? Uh, when we recognize that we are undeserving, it's then that God comes through and says, hey, that's exactly the heart that I like to work in. For those of us that feel perhaps overly familiar with the Lord, and we've come here and say, hey, you know, I'm in church so many times. I hear these messages preached over and over again. They just don't seem to be getting through. Jesus has become so familiar with me. Why do I even go back again? And Jesus is going to say to us, and you're going to see in this passage that you're just the type of person that he wants to be working with. He wants to invest himself in your life, and he's going to do a work in your life to draw you back to him, to rekindle what has once been um, on fire. 
Let's keep moving forward. So the first thing we said were the conditions are set. The conditions were set there for Jesus to do a great work uh, in this man's life because they were undeserving. The second thing, verse number 46, what do we see Jesus do then in this setting? It says, so he came, to Gent- he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water into wine and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. The first thing that God does, and we see this, the first, we're going to talk about four actions taken here. The first action he takes is he makes himself available. He shows up again. He makes himself accessible. And Jesus has made himself accessible to us in leaving the fathers, leaving his place in heaven, coming down, living and working with us, um, displaying himself to us in ways that were um, totally undeserved, right? So on the grand scheme of things, Jesus has made himself accessible to mankind. But on the local element of things too, Jesus makes himself amazingly accessible to those of us in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, We have a wonderful blessing that we can be in church whenever we feel like it on a Sunday. And we know that when we come here, we're going to hear from preachers that are going to preach us, that are going to preach from the Bible. Uh, we know also that we're not going to receive any persecution as a result of that. We know that God has worked here before in the same way he did in Cana, and he is going to be here again in the future. There's a sense of predictability to Jesus being in Galilee, and there's also a sense of predictability for Jesus doing a work in this place. Jesus shows up over and over again here, making himself available to us. This is really an amazing show of God's grace that we often take for granted. When you're in a situation in your life when there's not a church nearby, when you don't have the opportunity to to go to a place where you know you're going to hear from the Lord, you will quickly understand just what a blessing a place like this is. So God, the first thing he does, the first act of kindness that he bestows upon his people is this act of um, mercy and grace in making himself available. I think yeah, we're, we're up to speed. Thanks, Wayne, for staying with me as well. I'm not calling out the slides. I appreciate it. So he makes himself available. The second thing, uh, the second act of kindness, we say, is that the child was made sick. The child was sick. It might be difficult for us to think about that being an act of kindness, but really, It is. Because had the child not been sick, the man would have had no reason to leave Capernaum and pursue a meeting with Jesus Christ. And not just the child being sick, but the child being sick to the point that there was no hope for this child outside of Jesus. The only way the man was going to leave Capernaum and pursue Jesus was if there was no other hope for that child. If he could have found a solution in doctors, the meeting with Jesus would have never taken place. If he could have found the solution in some other um, uh, non-traditional medicine, then why make a trip to leave uh, his son on his deathbed and pursue a meeting with Jesus? So perhaps the greatest kindness that we see evidenced um, in this man's life right now is actually the kindness of the son being sick, and not just sick, but sick to the point that he was about to die and there was no other hope out there. 
Had that not taken place, then the meeting with Jesus would have never occurred. The man would have never gone to where he could, where Jesus would have predictably been, where he would have heard the message back from him. What's the next thing we see? We see a convicting statement. Let's keep reading. When this man... When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is a harsh thing to come back for a man who's about to lose his son. And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. There's a convicting statement that's said here that actually presses in on the man when he's uncomfortable and hurting already, he hurts him further. And why does Jesus do this? It's because he wants him to understand that his greatest need is not the need of his son's healing, but it's the need of his own unbelief. He shifts his focus from being totally reliant on his son's problem or or focused on his son's problem to suddenly looking in his own life. So Jesus says, hey, this is not about you coming to see see me just to heal your son, unless you see those signs, you're not going to believe. There's something that needs to take place in your heart right now that I'm at work doing. This was an act of kindness. God's convicting work in our hearts, showing us where we're falling short, is actually God being gracious and kind to us. The last and most evident act of kindness then comes next, and it's here in verse number um, 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Now, although Jesus didn't respond to the man's request the way he wanted him to, the man wanted him to come down to Capernaum with him. And Jesus says, Go. I'm not going with you. You're going to go your way. You're going to Uh, uh, we're going to split right here. So what you're desiring from me, the way you want me to work, is not the way that I'm going to work, but I'm going to work anyways. Go your way, your son lives. And the man believes. He leaves. And what does he believe? He believes that God is, that Christ is capable of doing what he says right here. That Christ is capable of healing his son. And there's suddenly a split in the timeline when he heads his way and Jesus continues doing his work elsewhere. The healing of the son is certainly an act of kindness and grace, but it's not the greatest act of kindness and grace that's going on here. Because really what God is working towards is not the temporary solution to death in the son, but he's working towards a permanent solution to eternal death in the man himself, in the official. He wants to see this man believe unto eternal life. And that's the results then that we see next. Look with me as you wrote in verse number 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour and when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. As we've worked kind of through our outline, we've seen, first of all, the fact that God's working in the official's life and in the lives of those around him was done done for people who did not deserve his kindness. 
The next thing we saw was we saw God's actions laid out to these people, acts of kindness that we oftentimes don't think of as acts of kindness. When you were reading through that passage, did you think to yourself, ah, the sick child unto death, that's God's goodness to this man. Uh, The fact that God is saying, hey, unless you uh, see signs and wonders, you won't believe. That's actually God being kind to this man. When God brings hardship into our lives, when God convicts our hearts, uh, do we see that simply as God being mean to us? Or do we think, hey, God's actually doing a kind work in my heart right now? Uh, if, If the definition of grace is turning our hearts towards Jesus then in those actions that we just reviewed, we see grace on display. God's turning the heart of the man towards Jesus. Now, what are the results? The results are are, uh, quite predictable when it comes to God at work. And the first thing we see is that God healed the son. Right As you're reading through this passage here, you see that he healed the son at the very hour that he and the father met together. So when he asked his servants, hey, what happened? When did it happen? They said it happened at the seventh hour. And he says, hey, that's the same exact hour that Jesus said that my son would be healed. So first of all, Jesus did take care of the need that the the man had. Sometimes we have an opportunity to get so focused on God's spiritual blessings that we forget that he is a healer. And we can't come to him with the challenges of of, uh, uh, of physical infirmities and, and material challenges and say, Lord, help. And he's interested and capable of helping us. Just as the same way he healed this son, he's still in the healing business. Just in the same way he provides for the woman um, spiritually, he's still in the spiritual provision business as well. Uh, so God heals his son, but in so doing, Um, he uh, accomplishes an even greater work. What are the other results that we see here? We see also that the man's fears were relieved. Because when when Jesus said, go, your son liveth, um, if it happened at the seventh hour, that would have been at one o'clock in the afternoon, the man could have got back to Capernaum um, right about nightfall. But what we find here is actually uh, the next day is when he's traveling. So what is it that Prevented. What is it that allowed him to remain in place while his son is on his deathbed instead of rushing back? It would have been the confidence and assurance that, hey, when God says something, I know it's going to be true. But the greatest of all the blessings is found at the very end, right? Where it says, the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. So not only was the son saved physically, the father was converted. This is the kind of belief that John is talking about in John chapter 20 when he says, hey, the purpose I'm writing all this is so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God and in believing that we might have everlasting life. This is the belief that was ultimately brought about in this man's heart a belief that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and that is he's the Messiah. He's not just a medicine man, right? I'm not just going to see him for healings of my my physical problems, but this is the Messiah in the world. Not only was the man saved, not only was the man converted, but his entire house was converted. As we look back on this account 2,000 years past, what is the greatest of these three blessings? Is it that the son was healed? Is it that 
the man's fears were relieved? Or is it the fact that he and his whole entire household believed and in believing have eternal life and are now with the Father in heaven? Obviously, from our perspective, the greatest blessing is the third. The question is, do we view our own circumstances the same way? I'd like you to just take a look at the last quote we have, and we'll wrap it up with this and head into our time of uh, communion. I was reading a book uh, recently, and this quote jumped out at me. It says, in nothing does God's grace shine forth more gloriously in this world than in the ordering of the occasions, instruments, and means of conversion of the people of God. However skillfully God's hand molded your bodies, however tenderly he preserved them, and however bountifully he provided for them, keep going, if he had not also ordered some means or other for your conversion, all the former favors and benefits he had done for you had meant little. This, oh, this is the most excellent benefit you have ever received from his hand. As we think through this accounting of the official, recognizing that, hey, this man, he didn't deserve any of the goodness that God showed to him. As a matter of fact, he would probably have been best characterized as perhaps a fair-weather fan, um, like the rest of the people there in Galilee. Uh, when we consider the fact that God has shown his goodness to him in all circumstances, right? Both the good things that happened to him and the bad things that happened to him were actually God's kind mercies turning his heart to the Lord. And then we consider the fact that, that um, as a result of this turning, not only was he saved, but his entire house was saved. We would have to say, hey, that that of all was the most excellent benefit he had ever received. My question for you today would be simply this, is uh, as you think about um, the circumstances in your life, uh, the difficulties in your life that, that, are, that are pulling uh, away all elements of self-reliance, are you seeing those as, as um, curses? Are you seeing those as God punishing you? Uh, does, that, does that seem to you just to be um, God being mean to you? And then when somebody comes to you and says, hey, all things work together for the good, does thou, do those words kind of fall on dull ears now? Um, my hope for you is that as we look at passages like this and as you look at your own life, that you will say, hey, actually, I see God's kind and gracious hand, even today, turning my heart towards him. If you look back at the beginning of that quote, flip back one slide. If you can go back just one side. It talks about, uh, it says, um, well, that was it. You had it? One more forward, thanks. It talks here about God ordering the occasions of our lives. And he's ordered the occasions of all of our lives differently. Um, we've all come to the place of conversion and in reliance in Jesus. Those of us who trust in him as our Savior, we've come from different paths but we all share one thing in common. And the one thing that we share in common is a reliance on the one event that he ordered, and that was the event of sacrificing his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for us. 
So of all the different events that he ordered, the occasions, the instruments, the means, it's different for each and every individual out here except for one. And that is that God ordered the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ for us that we might have the penalty of our sin paid for by him on the cross and that we might be granted his righteousness. And as we move into the time of communion now, this is the one element of shared um, experience in salvation that we have to celebrate. As we take the bread, symbolizing his broken body, as we drink the cup that reminds us of his shed blood, um, it's called communion for a reason, because that's what we all have in common. That's, the, that's what binds us together as a community. So even now, as as we start to turn our attention away from this particular passage and think about God's saving work in our life, how he has ordained all of the events around us to bring us to a relationship with him, his gracious goodness to us, it's good for us to be reminded again that although we're all coming from different areas, we do share one common thing, and that is we are all undeserving sinners saved by God's gracious work of providing a sacrifice for us in his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Um, I would like to uh, encourage those of you that know Jesus Christ as your Savior to consider his goodness and grace in your life as we take the Lord's Supper. Um, For those of you that may have uh, never experienced that goodness, we as a church would ask you to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper because it doesn't really make any sense in that situation. What we're symbolizing now is our trust and our faith and reliance in what Jesus has done for us. If you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus, we would love to talk to you about that opportunity. I'm sure that there are members of the church around here that would be eager to share with you what God has done in their life and the grace he showed to them and how you too can uh, have life everlasting by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Um, we would encourage you as, as the band starts to move forward to, uh, to help us during this time that we take a few minutes of, of uh, reflection and prayer, contemplating what God has done for us, the goodness and kindness he showed to us. And then after that, uh, you can move towards the two stations that we have in the back where there is bread and, uh, and the cup for us. And um, uh, I would just encourage you to take uh, time together Uh, take time alone to reflect on what the Lord has done. Let's thank him for this passage and for uh, the time we've had together. Our Father, we do thank you for, um, we do thank you for the undeserved kindness that you've shown to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us an example here, even in this passage, of how you work in people's lives. And Lord, we know that you work consistently in people's lives. So we thank you for the goodness of, um, uh, of a place like Providence Road Church, where we know that when we come, that you will be here, that your word will be taught, that your people will be around us, that we can find you in this place. We thank you, Lord, also that in the events of the week that you, that you force us to to feel a need to be in this place, Lord, that you bring to us discouragement and discomfort in order to help us not be self-reliant, Lord, but in order to focus our attention on you. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you answer our prayers, reminding us that you are a good and awesome God and that you're powerful and capable 
Um, and we thank you, Lord, most of all that you have pointed our hearts, Lord, turned our hearts towards you um, and toward uh, a reliance in your son, Jesus Christ, believing that he is who he said he was, the savior of the world. Lord, we ask now that as we take part in, in this, your, your communion time, uh, that you might bind our hearts closer to you, that you might bind our hearts closer together, and Lord, that you might use this time um, in a way that is profitable for all of us. And we offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.